The text for this morning's sermon is Luke 3, 23 through 38. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. When Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathan, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Yoram, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Oben, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Ezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Saruk, the son of Reu, the son of Palak, the son of Eber, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arafazan, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalael, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Now let's admit, Scott deserves a hand for that. I think you got a raise coming, Scott. That was... I'm glad I get to preach it and not read it. (laughs) Uh, Let's pray. Father, I pray that you use this text to send us out of here this afternoon singing and praising your name. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to, um, well, let me give you my sermon point since you don't have your sermon notes before we get rolling. It's real simple. Uh, the charge of this message, it rhymes, cling to the king and sing. Cling to the king and sing. Uh, 
in cling. That's my favorite word for talking about faith, not just an intellectual uh, knowledge, but uh, grabbing onto something, knowing that it's your only hope. Cling to the King and sing, worship God. And uh, really, there's two subpoints. Uh, groan in light of your relation to the first Son of God. Groan in light of your relation to the first Son of God. And second, worship in light of your relation to the second Son of God. So let's take an inventory of your week. I want you to think back and tell me if you've experienced these things. This past week, have you sinned? Is there anything that you would be ashamed of that you did that if everyone here saw it, you'd be embarrassed? Therefore, in your sin, you probably kept it private. Have you sinned this week? Have you felt shame for your sin? If you have, I got good news. This Sunday in church, we're going through a genealogy. Praise God. Have any of you experienced relational strife, conflict in any sort of relationship in your life? If you have... Praise God, this Sunday in church, we're going through a genealogy. Have any of you experienced marital strife? I know some of you aren't married, but has that even been unfortunate for you this week? Has there been any conflict in your marriage. If you have, take heart. We're going to look at a genealogy this morning. Have any of you experienced frustration in your work this week? Any sort of frustration? Well, take heart. We're going to look at a genealogy this morning. Have any of you this past week experienced bodily pain? Any sort of discomfort in your body? Well, take heart this morning. We're going to look at a genealogy. At any point this week, have you thought about death? Has the topic of death come up in your mind? Maybe with the Florida shootings? Maybe with the flu that is killing people that's in the news. Maybe with some body ache or pain, you're worried that it may lead to death. Have you thought this week about death? Well, take heart. We're going to go through a genealogy this morning. Have any of you experienced any feelings of Separation from God, distance in your relationship 
with God? Well, guess what? It's your lucky day because we're going to look at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. We take for granted genealogies and we fail to appreciate them the way we should. Now, I'm just going to admit, if I were going to go listen to one of my favorite preachers, let's say uh, I was going to go out to California and listen to John MacArthur, and his text was this text, I'm going to feel a little bummed. I would think, come on, let's get a text that isn't just a list of names. But if I went to John MacArthur's church, he would point out a lot of interesting things about genealogies. In fact, he would point out six reasons why genealogies were so important to the people of Israel, to God's people. They determined the original division of the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. They established the right of inheritance to properties. They were the basis of the principle of kinsman redemption. They played a role in taxation. They determined one's eligibility to serve as a priest in Israel. And most importantly, they determined the claim, the rightful claim to be king of Israel and ultimately the Messiah. Ancestry for the Jewish people was so much more significant and important than it is for us in practical experience. Most of you don't know where you came from very many generations back, and it doesn't have that big of role in your life, but it was not so for the Israelites. And at this point in time when Luke wrote this gospel. Our text for today is, in fact, a genealogy, and it's we get two of them in the Gospels. We get one by Matthew, and we get one by Luke, and they're uh, different from each other. At first glance, this might cause us to be concerned why different names are in them. We're going to talk about that just for uh, a moment, but uh, Matthew and Luke had different purposes in writing. Matthew's main focus was to write this gospel for Jewish people, for people who understood uh, the history of the Old Testament. And so his genealogy moves to Abraham. His target audience is the Israelites, and he moves to Abraham. There's 42 names in it. And he follows Joseph's line all the way to Solomon, the son of David, and it's the royal line. And Matthew puts it right at the beginning of his gospel. Luke throws his right after the baptism of Jesus where the father speaks out, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. And then 
he gives us this genealogy which emphasizes Jesus as the Son of God from the very first verse of this genealogy down to the last. Luke's target audience is universal for all humanity. It goes all the way back to Adam. There's 77 names. And it seems to follow Mary's line all the way to Nathan, David's son, rather than Solomon. It's the physical line rather than showing the legal right to the throne. So here's how you could think of it. Think of David. So right away, Luke's has a different father for Joseph than Matthew does. Matthew has Jacob as the father of Joseph. And what we have in this text right away, uh, we see, uh, if I can find it here, right away, in verse 23, it says, Jesus, when he begins his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, two things there. One, if he's a supposed son of Joseph, it's highlighting the fact that Mary conceived Jesus through a virgin birth. He's the son of God. Joseph is his legal son, and so it seems to point here that he's going to follow Mary's line. So the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, where, and from Heli all the way to Nathan and to David, we have different names from Luke's genealogy. All that to say this. In God's providence, it seems, we know God promised David that he was going to have a son that was going to take his throne. And David had many sons. He had many wives. And one obscure son that he had was Nathan. Nobody knows about Nathan, David's son. It's in a genealogy uh, that uh, we don't have time to go look at, but we could go look at it. And his famous son is Solomon. So think of this. You have David. He has Solomon. You have this royal line, all these people over here. And then you have Nathan, where you have this physical line that leads to Mary. And Mary and Joseph are engaged. And they have Christ. They have Jesus, the Son of God. And that's what Luke is highlighting uh, for us. To understand the significance of this genealogy, if we just read it, we might think, why is this going to cause me to sing? We need to go back. We need to take a journey back to where the genealogy ends, to the Son of God, the first unique Son of God, Adam. That's where this genealogy ends. And we need to see what significance this has for us as Luke drops it in in, in Luke chapter 3. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning actually in Genesis. 
And we're going to look at some of these names which come at the end of, of this list of names. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the chapter that reveals the fall of Adam. It's a dark chapter. It has a few glimmers of hope in it. But the reality is, all those things I spoke about at the beginning of my message, asking if you've experienced those things, are all seen in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not a prophet. I knew how your week went because I knew what Genesis 3 says. I know all those three things were true for you because of the beginning. Right away, as God creates Adam and Eve, God tells Adam and Eve to have dominion over his creation. Dominion has the idea of, of kingship. It's a kingdom. The first man was made a king, and he was to rule well over the land. Over the garden God had given him, he was to rule wisely in a way that reflected who God is. He put him in a garden where there's rivers and there's trees. There's two specific trees mentioned, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told them that they could eat from every tree of the garden except for the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them that if they eat from that tree, they will surely die. As you know, the serpent comes to deceive them. Uh, Satan's main attack is always the same, to get you and I to doubt God's word as he got Adam and Eve to doubt his words. If you look at uh, the end of verse 1, the serpent says, did God actually say? That's one of the most tricky statements, the one of the most deceptive statements. Did God actually say? And then later it, at the end of verse 4, he says, you will surely or not surely die. He says flat out, God lied to you. God's tricking you. He knows that if you eat from that tree, you're going to gain more knowledge. You're going to be like him. And as we know, Adam and Eve sinned as they doubted God's word and ate the fruit. And immediately, just as you sinned this last week and doubted God's word at certain places and time, they did. And as soon as they sinned, they realized they were naked and they felt shame and they hid. Just like you and I feel shame as we hide our sin. The same thing. And then, in that shame, they get busy. They got to cover up their shame. They got to work to try to cover it up. And so, they become seamstress with leaves. What are we going to do? We're going to find leaves 
fig leaves. We're going to sew them together and we're going to cover our shame. And so man works to cover his shame just as you work to cover your shame this week as you also sinned. And then immediately after they sinned, this beautiful marriage, this beautiful relationship between a man and a woman became broken. Relational strife jumps onto the scene as Adam blames God and he blames Eve. Look at verse 12, Genesis 3.12. The man said to the woman, or the man, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, that's him blaming God, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Here's the sad thing about this statement. Uh, my brother pointed this out to me this week as he's preaching through Genesis right now. Adam's basically saying, when he's caught by God, kill my wife. Because God has said, anyone who eats from the tree will surely die. And they're found out by God. And he says, the woman whom you gave me told me to eat. This is a far cry from what we just read at the end of Genesis chapter 2 when Adam sees his wife and says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. You see man just go, yes, finally, this relationship, this woman. And in a matter of a few verses, we see tension in relationships, especially the marriage relationship. And if you're married, I know you've felt that this week, if you were going to be honest. And then, as we know, Eve blames the snake. God curses the serpent. And we get our first glimmer of hope in the midst of a really dark chapter as God says this, the Lord said to the serpent in verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It seems like in the midst of this darkness and brokenness from a woman, hope is going to come. And then he says to Eve, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so here again, you see a glimmer of hope, even though now things aren't meant the way they're supposed to be. The glimmer of hope is she's going to bear children. When God said you're surely going to die, there is going to be children that are going to be born, which means there is hope that this one who's supposed to come from the woman will finally bring relief for them. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Uh, That could mean that uh, she wants independence from the husband or wants his position. And it says, but he shall rule over you. In the fall, there was the reversal of roles. 
Eve took the lead. Adam was a poor king. He ruled poorly, stood back. He didn't lead his wife. And the fall of man happened. But God does say, I think there's even a glimmer of hope in he shall rule over you, meaning God will bring it back to a right relationship. Because in verse 17, he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So there's your, there's your struggle at work and there's your physical pain you've felt this week. By the sweat of your face you shall eat till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so now Satan's proven to be a liar because Adam is in fact going to die. Death is a reality now for mankind. We've all been confronted with all these things just in this past week. And then we get a glimmer of hope in Genesis 3, 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all living. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Here's what man worked to try to cover his shame, but that didn't work. So God went to work. God made clothing. Adam and Eve didn't make clothing. And it was out of skins, which is foreshadowing that an animal had to die for there to be skins, for there to be a covering. For God to be gracious, blood is going to have to be shed, and it's all going to have to be a work of God and not the scheming of man. And then the worst part, look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So they did know good and evil, but they didn't know it in the way they thought they would know it. They knew evil in that they became evil. They experienced evil as the core of who they became as they rejected God's word. He says, Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, therefore, God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin separates us from our God. No longer can they dwell in the presence of God when God walks with them in the garden. Now, if he left them in the garden, they could eat from the tree of life and live forever, separated in rebellion to God. And God in his mercy, though, drives them out of the garden where there's going to be thorns and thistles and pain in childbearing and miscarriages and barrenness and relational strife. And all those things are screaming, you're not in the garden. You're not in fellowship with God. And thank God 
they didn't go eat of the tree of life and forever remain separated. God in his grace let you feel the pain this week. Let you feel the shame this week in your sin to remind you to look for this Redeemer. Things aren't supposed to be this way. And so, right away in Genesis 4, you see Eve get her excitement up. Can you imagine being the first time a woman gets pregnant? (laughs) The miracle of life in the womb? You can hear the hopefulness in this text. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. (laughs) She thinks, I believe, that this is going to be the one. This is going to be the one to reverse the curse, to bring them back to the garden, to crush the serpent's head. And she gives birth to Cain. But as we know the story, Cain, unfortunately, ends up killing his brother Abel. God comes to Cain and says, your brother's blood fell on this dirt here, and this dirt is crying out, and because of that, this dirt is cursed for you. No longer before it produced, with thorns and thistles, fruit, if you worked it hard enough, it's not going to do it anymore. It's a double curse on the ground for you, Cain, because you did this. Cain says, this is, this is too much for me. You see a glimmer of God's grace here. He says, they're going to kill me. I'm going to wander the earth as a fugitive. He says, no, I'm going to put a mark on you. And anyone who hurts you, I will revenge sevenfold upon those people, whoever, whoever would hurt you. And then we get Cain's genealogy starting in Chapter 4, verse 17. I want to highlight one person in this genealogy named Lamech. In Genesis 4.18, we see that Methushael fathered Lamech. Now, remember that name, Lamech. Here's what's highlighted in Cain's line. This guy's a bad dude. Lamech said to his wives... He's only supposed to have one, and he has two, so he's not respecting one man and one woman. Ada and Zilhah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say, and here's what he brags. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Oh, this guy is rebellious. He says, a guy wounded me, and I killed him. And if any, I'm so safe in my rebellion that Cain has God protecting him sevenfold, I protect myself 77-fold. And what's highlighted is, this is a bad man. Cain is not the guy we're looking for. But then we get a glimmer of hope in verse 25. See if you can see it. Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again. You see that? 
You feel the hopefulness in that statement? And she bore a son and called his name Seth. And she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, um, and he called his name Enosh. And that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, it looks hopeful now again. God's given another son. People are starting to call upon God. And then we get to chapter 5, a genealogy. You know, it's kind of like we run into a genealogy, so we might as well go genealogy crazy. We're just going to keep looking at genealogies. But as we do that, I think you're going to sing the last song we sing today with joy in your heart. So here's what we see. Verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then we get this pattern. We don't have have time to go through it all, but if you look at verse 5, we see, thus all the days Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, they lived a long time back then before the flood. We're not going to get into that. But the point is, he lived and he died, and God's word was true, and Satan has proved a liar. And then we see, thus are the days of Seth in verse 8, were 912 years, and he died. And then Enish dies, and then Kenan dies, and then Mahalalel dies, and then Jared dies, and then we get a glimmer of hope again. Enoch doesn't die. He walks with the Lord, and the Lord just takes him up which highlights the mercy of God in the midst of another dark chapter. And then we get to Methuselah. Everyone knows he's the oldest man who ever lived. He lived to be 969 years. You can see in verse uh, 29, or in 27, but we see also that he died. But we get another Lamech. Cain had a Lamech, and now Seth has a Lamech. And it says in verse 28, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, now get this, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. How many of you would be pretty excited at this point in time in human history if you had read Genesis 3? This son Noah is going to bring us relief from the curse that is on the land. Finally, the seed of the woman. Finally, we're going to get the new creation. But if we read on in the genealogy, we see that uh, Lamech lived 777 years and he died after Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we're told that the earth is wicked. Sin is rampant. And in Genesis 8 and 9, as we look at Noah's story, this one in whom it seems like there's going to be hope, we get the language of a new creation all the way uh, to the point where uh, uh, 
he says in uh, Genesis 8.22, God says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of his heart is evil from youth. Neither will I strike down every, every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And Noah experiences the waters go down and land come up, just like at the beginning of creation. Dry land rises out of the waters. We get the same language about the animals that come out of the ark and they're to be fruitful and multiply. And Noah and his family are supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And Noah even plants a garden right away. In Genesis 9.20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. And in verse 21, it says, He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. So he plants a vineyard, and from the fruit of that vineyard, he also sins and finds himself naked. And it seems like our second Adam, so it seemed, that was going to be the one to bring about the new creation, fails. And then a curse is put on his son's ham, son Canaan. And we see that the hope falls again. I feel, as, I, as I'm reading this, I'm like, this is what it's like to be a Vikings fan. It's like you get your hopes up. You think sooner or later, this has to be the one. This has to be the year. Surely because of this, it's, and then it never happens. It never happens. Time. Think about the time as man, men and women experience weeks just like you had last week. Over and over and over again. And then we don't have time to do it, but we've done it before. Abraham, God calls. Surely this is the one. God promised him land. That might be the reversal of the curse. Children, that might be reversal of the childbearing curse. Blessing to all the nations. Maybe it's going to be Abraham, but it's not Abraham, but it's promised to be one of his sons. And then Moses, this one who speaks the word of God to the people, he in a sense mediates for the people of God. He uses, God uses him to save the Israelites and all uh, who put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. He leads them through the waters of God's wrath that falls upon his enemies. He leads them through the wilderness in a sense, across the cursed ground to the brink of the promised land that flows with milk and honey, maybe the new garden, and yet Moses is not allowed to go in, and he's not the one who's going to bring them into the garden. You would think Joshua would be it. Scott was showing me this this week. Joshua means Savior. It's Jesus' name. 
<laughs> he actually leads God, God's people into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. He conquers God's enemies. The, the Israelites are fruitful and multiply in the land, and God is dwelling with them in the tabernacle. Surely it's going to be Joshua, right? But after they're in the promised land, at the end of Judges, one of the most depressing books, the last verse of Judges says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But then we get the book of Ruth in the midst of total darkness. At the end of the book of Ruth, we get another genealogy. Let's look at it. Ruth 4, verse 13. Ruth 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, who is a Moabite, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. Now, let's just be honest. If we've been reading the Bible all the way through, and we find out that the Lord gave a conception, our hope begins to rise, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be re renowned in Israel. Hey, maybe this is the one. He shall be for to, to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. It seems like the woman's shame is being lifted here. And through this birth, this is the one. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi named Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now what is not in Israel at this time? There is no king in Israel, and everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes. But God, through this amazing providence, has brought Ruth and Boaz together. And David is going to be born. We don't have time. If we were going to read the rest of Ruth, we would see the genealogy that culminates to David at the end of verse 22. We've talked about this many times. David brought peace to the people of God like no one had ever known up to this point. He'd conquered their enemies, but David sinned like Adam sinned. He proved to be an unworthy king, yet God promised in his mercy and grace that through his offspring would come a royal do dominion that would never end and his dominion would rule the entire earth. There's going to be a good king that's going to do it right. And his kingdom's never going to end. It's going to last forever. So, I don't know if you feel exhausted, but I do. The people of God felt exhausted as they struggled with all the results of being found in relation to the first king 
of the earth, the first Adam. Through Adam came sin. Through Adam came death. Through Adam came pain. Through Adam came a creation that was frustrated. Through Adam came broken relationships. And what we see in this genealogy in Luke is that the Son of God, the Son of Adam, who is the unique Son of God, has finally arrived on the scene. God the Father has just spoken in a verbal voice, this is my Son, beloved Son, with Him I am well pleased. And now Luke lays down this genealogy rock solid and says, this is the one. Go back through those names this afternoon. You're going to find a lot of those names we just looked at in Genesis. Jesus is the one who was promised to us. He is our home. This last week you groaned because of sin and shame, because of your relationship to Adam. You've groaned because of relational conflict, marital strife, frustrations in work, bodily pain, the reality of death, feelings of distance from God because of the first Adam, the first king who failed to be a good king, failed to lead well, failed to have dominion over the earth, and he failed to obey God's word. But Luke, in this genealogy, screams out to us that the promised one has arrived. The second Adam is on the scene. The better king is enthroned. He's perfectly obeyed the father as Adam didn't obey. He's conquered sin. He's brought peace among his people. He's died for his bride. Adam says, kill my bride. Jesus comes and says, I'll take her punishment. I will die for her. He has redeemed our labor so that our work is not in vain, but now we can work for the glory of God. He has conquered death. He secured for us new bodies that will not ache. He has reconciled us to God because he is the second Adam. He's a real man who can really represent us. You might say, it's not fair that I'm born in Adam and I inherit all this sin. Well, don't complain too much because you can be born into the second Adam. And the second Adam does the work of covering your shame by becoming the sacrifice becoming the one who sheds his blood. He's a real man who is the Lamb of God, and he is God's working to cover our shame and guilt. And he is the one who brings about a new creation. First in your heart and one day upon this earth, he is the seed of the woman Mary and is the son of of God. Thus, if we were to finish out the genealogy in Genesis, we could say all the days of Jesus 
on this earth as a man were 33 years, and he died. But he lived. But he didn't remain dead. But he was resurrected from the grave. Our Redeemer lives. This glorious genealogy is screaming to us that though we may groan this week, we know that a new king reigns and there's a new week coming when we won't suffer from all the things we suffered from last week. These are not just names. This is God's mercy showing us what he did to purchase us back into a relationship with him. He is your only hope. Cling to the king and worship God because that's what you were created to do. To worship your creator. To trust in his word. To trust in his work done on your behalf. Father, thank you that in your providence you kept these genealogical records for us so that we can worship you here in 2018. And as we experienced the things we experienced last week, our hearts would sing as we're looking forward to the culmination of the reign of Christ when he returns, when he brings the new heavens and new earth, the new garden, the new river and the new Jerusalem, new fellowship with you and the tree of life will be in the midst of that garden. Father, we confess our hope is in the Son of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.